All right, as you're sitting down and gathering your stuff, let me kind of give you an introduction for what we're doing today. Uh, welcome again to our fourth installment of Medieval Church History. Um, glad you're back. Some of y'all have been here every week. I'm so very proud of you. Um, today, I have two topics we're going to discuss. As you can see on your uh, outline, it's medieval scholasticism, and then a group of people called the Waldensians. So we're going to talk about these two things today. You will notice that I refused again to talk about the papacy. I keep promising a segment on that, but I, I really wanted to cover these two topics, so I have decided that in the fall, hopefully when I get an opportunity to teach about the Reformation, um, we can talk about the papacy as one of the reasons why the Reformation needed to happen, and I'll give you a good summary then. That'll give me all summer into the fall to really study it and pick out the parts that we need to talk about, just because there's so much information about both the history, the involvement of the state with the, of the papacy, and then the, the errors in some ways in many ways, that the papacy was purporting at the time. And I just, I, I think it, it just requires a little bit more study than I'm willing to give it right now. So just, uh, I thank you for your uh, coming back anyway, even though I'm not talking about the papacy. Um, I was accused of avoiding the topic last week but at the picnic, so that is not my intent. Holy, at least. Um, if you could uh, turn your Bibles, let's read a couple scriptures as we consider the idea of medieval scholasticism primarily. Go to Acts 17. We're going to read about Paul when he goes and talks to the Athenians. And then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians as well. So Acts 17. We're going to start in, start with verse 16. So this is Paul in Athens. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be, to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what, is this, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all, excuse me, all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man to all, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Yet they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world, the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has been given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the, of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. So just the, the vision of God's uh, plan compared to human wisdom. And then Paul expands on this again in 1 Corinthians 1. 
If you can turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 1, as he crushes in some way the wisdom and philosophies of the age and the day. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's just keep reading. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and Lord, um, today we don't look to exalt anyone else but you. Lord, I pray that um, as we examine our hearts and consider uh, what you have for us today, Lord, that our boast would only be in you and in the perfect work that Jesus did on our behalf. And for that, Lord, we praise you. Lord, even as we look at the history of your church, Lord, I would ask that you would um, give us spirits that are humble. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that um, see you at work, even in the, um, the times of the church, Lord, that appear to be dark. Lord, help us see the light of the gospel and your truth today. Lord, I pray that we would um, put our hope and trust in your authoritative word and not into the, into the emptiness of the philosophies of this world and this age. Lord, I ask that you would bless this time. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. All right. Let's hit this running. Two topics, medieval scholasticism and the Waldensians. Now, these might not be clearly connected, yet as we close our discussion about medieval scholasticism, um, talking about the Waldensians is going to give us a lot of hope and excitement and kind of propel us looking forward to a coming reformation in the church. So, as we've talked about the last few weeks, the medieval age is the medieval is the Middle Ages. It's the time between five. 600 AD to around the late 1400s. Um, so that's a thousand year period in church history that we're talking about. So I'm not doing this chronologically, I'm doing this kind of by topic. Um, the main thing we're going to talk about today with scholasticism is going to be from around uh, 1100 to about 1300. So we're going we're to kind of dwell on this renewed sense of learning that happened during this period of history, especially in the church. So the church is kind of coming out of the Dark Ages. I kind of defined the Dark Ages between 900 and 1000 AD. It's kind of that time of much anticipation as um, the world was, um, I guess, coming to the point where it was a thousand years since Christ had been on earth, and there was much anticipation that something big was going to happen, and nothing big happened. Um, so they started a new millennium. And with the new millennium came a renewed sense of learning that had been absent in the post-Roman age. So scholasticism, let me say that slower, scholasticism uh, defined as the first topic you have. So this was the approved method for studying theology in the Middle Ages, and it was trying to connect theology with philosophy. Um, throughout the ages, uh, philosophy, especially Greek philosophy, um, there's, if you remember your Greek history, uh, the Greek philosophers, there's three great ones. It's Socrates, his student is Plato, 
and then Plato's student is Aristotle. So you have those three kind of main um, uh, philosophers that are influential from um, the Greek period. Socrates didn't really write anything. Plato wrote a lot, and Aristotle wrote a lot. Plato is concerned with the idea of what we see visibly in the material world is an image of forms that are greater, that are perfect. So the earth is just an image of that. So he has a mystical or spiritual sense about him. This is not Christian. Okay, so let's, let's start from there. These guys are not believers. They're definitely secular philosophers. So that's Plato. That's his idea. Aristotle is all about the physical and what he can uh, objectively identify and gather. He's a data collector. So Aristotle was, ex- was a philosopher around the time of Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great is going to conquer the, the known world, and everything's going to be under his kingdom. And as he goes, he's gathering empirical data that he's sending back to his tutor, who is Aristotle. Okay? So um, definitely two different perspectives uh, with Plato and Aristotle. Well, the church was heavily influenced both in the early days of the church and in the early Middle Ages by Plato. Yet, uh, Plato um, um, was obviously insufficient, but there was uh, this idea of trying to connect uh, early church theology with Platonic philosophy, and that kind of was going on for that kind of during that Dark Age period and also in the early church. Yet, there's a revival of Aristotle. It's interesting why there was a revival of Aristotle, and part of that was the influence of Islam. Um, Aristotle was a key uh, philosopher um, to um, the Islamic people, um, mainly because of its location in the Middle East. Aristotle had maintained some kind of precedence as a philosopher in that age. Persia, the Persian uh, scientists held closely to Aristotle's view as well. So all that Middle Eastern uh, area of the world was influenced by Aristotle. So as um, Islam is pressing in on the former uh, Roman Empire, um, they bring with it some different ideas, and Aristotle is one of those that's important. Um, so you're thinking, oh, what does Islam have to do with that? But these philosophers and these wisdom seekers are exchanging ideas. And Aristotle it could be said to explain reality by logic and observation. Um, Aristotle also believed in some, not, some very significant non-Christian things. He believed in the eternity of the world, um, and he did not believe in the idea of providence. So, these non-Christian guys have a heavy influence on the history of the church. So, as they're embracing these guys, so we talked about the monastic movement, which kind of was a revival of learning in the Middle Ages, um, so they started schools. Eventually, these schools got greater. So they had, in the bigger cities, what was called cathedral schools. So the big churches in Europe would sponsor schools. And eventually, those broke away, and we had the modern university. So the modern university comes on the stage around 1100 A.D. Um, previous to universities, studies could be described kind of like you would imagine studying in a monastery being more devotional versus academic. Uh, Their aim was to hear and recite God's Word and to use it to apply to their life. So that's a good thing. Yet they weren't looking to make any criticism or analysis of the Scriptures, per se. But the university changed that, and they embraced the dialectical method. Uh, So what the dialectical method was is you take kind of a consensus, you take a topic— So let's say, does God exist could be the topic, right? And you take the wealth of information that you have about those topics, and you present all of those, um, all that information. And you take that, and then you synthesize all that information, and you make a conclusion out of that information to say, yes, God exists, or no, God doesn't exist, whatever your conclusion is. So that's the idea of the dialectic method. There's also an idea of people um, arguing both sides. So you might present a yes argument, does God exist, or a no argument, does God exist? And these scholastics would line up on the sides of this argument and argue with one, each, one another about it. So that was, the, that was the method of learning. So intense study on those sources and what they said, and then they would argue uh, about what was actually true. Probably didn't sit as much under a lecture like you guys are being forced to do with me right now. 
um, but a lot more back and forth of these things. So let's, 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 let's let our minds go to that. So one of those sources would be the Bible, so it has authority in the Bible, yet maybe perhaps the Bible wasn't the exclusive authority. They might find a work by Plato, or in this case Aristotle, um, arguing something opposite of what the Bible says, and it would have equal weight. So how do we rationalize what the Bible says? Or maybe we even find something in the Bible that's an apparent contradiction in their view. And how do we rationalize that? And we bring these other sources in to talk about what the Bible says. All right, so we're getting somewhere historically, right, um, where we see the undermining of uh, the authority of the Bible. And in some way, um, that would impact uh, the authority of the church. So in some ways, we would agree with that because it seemed like the, the Roman Catholic Church needed some shakeup as well. So you understand the dialectic method. If you would like, you can read books and books and books about it as well, but I just summed it up for you in two minutes, so probably imperfectly as well. Uh, let's see. All right, I'm done with that page. Uh, yet there was some that didn't agree that this was the proper method to take. Uh, one writer of the age disagreed with the methodology, saying, that which is from the argument of the dialecticians cannot easily be adapted to the mysteries of the, div the, of the divine power. So it gets to this point where the um, scholastics want to explain everything and use reason to have a conclusion as to why certain things are. Uh, important thing about the university, the chief study of the scholastics was theology. So, you know, theology wasn't limited to a seminary or anything like that. It was the primary topic. But within theology, they were talking about science and philosophy and those things as well. Um, one byproduct of this, however, so I keep, I keep bringing up this point because this is something that needs to be reformed in the church and will be with the Reformation, is that you had the common people, so we're still living in a feudal society, so you had a common people that are the serfs, and then you have the nobles who have their landowners, but then you have some other people that are elite, and that's the church leadership, so they're a special people, the priests on up through the pope, that's a special group of people, and if you really wanted to be super spiritual, you become a monk. So that's, a, that's another segment of people. Well, now we've created a third silo, if you will, of uh, people that excludes kind of the common people, and that's academia. So you have the church, the university, and the monasteries, and where is there for common man to find hope about his life? Um, good question. I'm glad I asked it. Because um, I know you were thinking that. So I want, I've, labored, I've kind of belabored that point for you guys to see that the church is in need of reform and the ideas of the Reformation, especially the idea that um, you can do your work, whatever you're doing for God's glory, you didn't have to be part of this special class of society, yet this is what was forming at this time. Much of the debate um, in that hierarchy at the universities was useless. Uh, like, here's a question in the 1400s that they were asking, and they spent eight weeks on this topic, if you're ready. Do four five-minute prayers on consecutive days stand a better chance of being answered than one 20-minute prayer? So they talked about that for eight weeks. Now, it took Columbus a year before less than eight weeks to cross the Atlantic. So they were talking about that. You know those things about, you know, can God make a rock that God himself cannot move? These kind of absurdities that people discuss when they have nothing else to do when they're in college, uh, maybe me, and other things like how many angels can stand on the pinhead of a needle. I mean, it, it, so there's some good things that happen in scholasticism, but I'm, I'm trivializing it, but some of those things are what were discussed. Um, oftentimes, the theology in the university was tied too closely to philosophy and rationalism, and it did not encourage great preaching. Um, so it didn't, these guys didn't go to school to exposit the Bible, but more to uncover and rationalize maybe the mysteries of the church. Yet, there's some good things, and we're going to talk about those. Um, some good things, uh, some, some major characters, and that's who we'll talk about next. Um, the first is Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm was actually a Norman, so big date, big date in the history of Western civilization is 1066, 
That's when uh, William the Conqueror crosses the English Channel and conquers uh, Britain for the Normans, okay? Um, and along with that came Anselm, and he was a priest, and he was residing in Canterbury from 1033 to 1109. He mixed the older devotional method with this new scholastic approach. And he has two primary works. Their first one is Prose Logian. I have no clue if I say that correctly. And it is written, this, this uh, work of his is written as a prayer, so that shows it as being a devotional uh, type method. All right, so when you talk about these guys, their philosophy is a huge uh, part of who they are. So a lot of times philosophers have like little catchphrases or sayings, right? Like Kant does and Descartes, you know, I think, therefore I am, those kind of things. Uh, for Anselm, it's I believe in order to know. So belief is faith, uh, to know, reason, or rationalism. So he, so what's his starting point? Faith. So I believe. Um, so his beginning point is faith, and he uses logic and rationality to better understand what he already believes. He gives us the cosmological reasons for the existence of God. So I took a philosophy class. I took one philosophy class in college. It fit really good in my schedule, and it was intro to philosophy. And right now, I'm really wishing I paid more attention. Um, but it was... Uh, a lot of these arguments are still being debated. So what I give you today, anything philosophically that I give you today in this lesson, you can research on your own for a better understanding. Um, so his cosmological reasons for the existence of God, one of those examples would be the idea of design. You can observe the world and see that it is evident by nature that there's a creator by his conclusion, um, that this could not have happened by accident that somebody had to have designed um, the creation. He also came up with the ontological argument for the existence of God. So he wanted to identify, could God, could I identify that God exists without observing the known world? So he's going to shut his eyes and say, hey, does God exist? Can I identify that? And he would say that God was self-evident to him. And... Um, he defined God as that then which nothing greater can be conceived. Okay? Um, so if God exists in the mind, then he must exist in reality as well, even for the person that, de that denies God's existence. So that's the ontological argument of the existence of God. Books upon books, libraries upon libraries have been written about that. So have fun with that this week. I won't be here next week. I won't be here to teach next week, so I don't have to check up on your homework there. So, The next work is Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man. So, okay, this is a big theological point. Why the God-Man? Why is Jesus God? Why God became a man, and how was that necessary for our salvation? Um, he organized the theology around the satisfaction view of the atonement, um, that Jesus satisfied the wrathful, wrathful judgment that we were due because of his work on the cross. So an idea of the substitutionary view of the atonement as well. The church formally um, held to what was more the ransom to the devil view of the atonement. When I say the church, the, the church of the age, not the historic church. Um, and that view was Christ's sacrifice was a ransom paid to the devil to free sinners from his control. Um, so much correction that Anselm had done in the idea of the atonement. Um, he also, there was the idea of Christus Victor view, which was the idea that Christ overcame the forces of evil by his power, which definitely limits um, the view of the atonement. Yet he helped with this view of the substitutionary view of the atonement in the satisfaction view. Um, in his work, he said, salvation is dependent on the God-man. Man has an obligation to obey, but no ability. God has ability, but does, is not obligated. So in Christ, the God-man, both obligation and ability come together. That was his argument for the atonement. So we owe a debt to Anselm, and we kind of progressively um, owe fewer debts to these guys. 
but Anselm is one that we can hold up as an important uh, thinker in the Middle Ages. The next one is one of three Peters we're going to talk about today, and that's Peter Abelard, who lived from 1079 to 1142. So he's in Paris. That should tell you something, right? He's in Paris, so he's going to have something quirky to say. Um, Around 1122, and he is this great uh, arguer, um, gifted in rhetoric. He's a great teacher. He's the great debater of the, of the age. Um, people would flock to come see him debate other people. He was kind of like the prize fighter of, uh, of rhetoric, I guess, and argumentation. So Anselm would have said, I must believe in order that I may understand. And Abelard will say, I must understand in order that I may believe. So he's not going to believe anything if he can't grasp the reality of it. So kind of a, a rational approach to his understanding. Um, he believed that by doubting, we come to questioning, and by questions, we perceive truth. Okay? He wrote a book on theology called Sic a Nun, which is yes and no uh, for you Latin folks. Um, and he used the dialectical method of setting up questions and giving lists of contradictory answers to them. He emphasized the fact of those things that we cannot know, showed where the church and his view of the Bible contradicted itself. So he moved kind of from the realm of authority to the realm of rationality. He supported in the view of the atonement, the moral influence view, which, that, which says that Christ was the great, or we have a great example of Christ's love, which passes, passes on to us, and then that influences us influences us to love God and to love man as well. So not, a, not any kind of substitutionary atonement, no uh, responsibility for man for his sin and Christ bearing that on his behalf. So we have Abelard. Next we have Lombard, who, is the, who writes the most important work of the Middle Ages, and that's his book called The Four Books of the Sentences. And I think I've given you this in your handout. The four books are God, creation in the Old Testament, salvation through Christ, the sacraments, and last things. Um, this was the standard theological textbook of the Middle Ages. Even Calvin referred to his work about 100 times, yet, yet he rarely quotes him like he does Augustine. And this is what Calvin says about Lombard, and I don't have much for you about him, mainly because he was kind of boring is what I understand. I haven't read him directly. He said, this is Calvin, when Augustine says anything clearly, Lombard obscures it. And if there was anything slightly contaminated in Augustine, Lombard corrupts it. So so Calvin, when he's writing the Institutes, is referencing Lombard in the hope of correcting some of his medieval views in his theology and tracing it back to Augustine, and supporting what Augustine had said. So there's times where Lombard is arguing against or obscures Augustine. And that's kind of a trait of medieval theology. It's level upon level of detail um, that obscures the truth. So as you think about uh, this being the exclusive club of the academia, of the academic elite, you might think of it, um, as they obscure the truth even more through finite detail and precision and layer upon layer of that, how much more difficult is it for the ordinary or the common man to understand real truth? Um, dangerous in the sense that the true gospel wasn't being presented, but, but we were dealing with all this minutia instead. And that brings us to the last guy. There's, there's another one that I almost touched on, which is Bonaventure, uh, but I didn't bring him up just for time's sake. And the next one is, kind of, is the ultimate heavyweight, and that's Thomas Aquinas. Um, and I have some other material about him that I didn't include in my notes, so I'm going to go back and forth. Um, Aquinas lived from 1225 to 1274. He is referred to in the Roman Catholic Church as the angelic doctor. And right now he is the, the teacher of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, Yet, as a young man, and he carried this nickname throughout most of his life, his fellow students at the university uh, referred to him as the dumb ox. 
So he was a dumb ox. They called him that throughout his life, um, yet not a dumb individual. Um, he wrote two famous books, Summa Contra Gentiles and Summa Theology. Uh, the first is, is apologetic in nature and provides his defense for the Christian faith to non-believers. Um, that would include Muslims and Jews. And he uses five arguments to prove the existence of God. And these are kind of the traditional five arguments. I'm not taking the time to go through that with you, but all of these kind of depend on taking a causal sequence to the origin of God, or a causal sequence as to something's origin and identifying God as the preeminent origin. Um, and in that, he uses much of Anselm. His second book is his book on theology. So the first book's kind of for um, what he would perceive as the world. The second book is for the church. Um, he completed that book, and it's kind of his life's work, in 1272. Um, and in that book, he poses 512 questions in the scholastic and dialectical fashion, and he answers them in some 4,000 pages. Um, thankfully, I have not read those, or any of them. No. <laughs> um, it's got several emphases in this book. The first um, depends a great deal on Aristotle. So he uses both faith and reason, or philosophy and faith, uh, to kind of come to a consensus on his systematic theology. Um, he identified natural truths, which he understood through reason, and then he also identified supernatural truths. And those supernatural truths could not be argued for rationally, but could be accepted because of the authority of the Bible and faith. That was his view. Um, another emphasis of his was the use of analogy. So he said that God had revealed himself to us by use of uh, statements of analogy. These tell us about God but have limitations. So think about the Lord is my shepherd. Um, it gives us some kind of picture of who God is. So it's God giving us information, um, referring to God as Father. That tells us a little bit about who God is. But those things were not exhaustive to describe who God is, but glimpse of who he is. Um, God uses images, ideas, this is um, Aquinas' view, of our world to reveal himself to us. His third emphasis is precise definitions. He's clear, technical, and scientific in 4,000 words. Yet he lacks emotion and personal tone. Luther said in critique of Aquinas, experience alone makes one a theologian. Um, we might not completely agree with that statement, but in comparison to what Aquinas is doing, there's, there's, there's some experience that Luther has with his theology that Aquinas didn't appear to emote very well in his writing. So he believed Thomas was powerless, Aquinas, to speak to real spiritual needs. Yet Luther held him up for his humility. He criticized his work, but not the person. And his example of humility was a recommendation that Luther gave to his students often. Um, he often received praise for his studies, this is Aquinas, but he, only, he always responded that he desired to see Christ as his reward in the end. In 1567, the Catholic Church made him an official teacher of the church. So he dies, what, in 1274, I think is what I said. Um, it takes 300 years, so it's not like he's, on the, he's formulating immediate Catholic doctrine that they're accepting at that time. But 1567... Um, you remember your history about that time is the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent is the council the Roman Catholic Church calls in response to the Reformation. And at the Council of Trent, they recognize Aquinas as one of the primary teachers of the church. Um, and in 1879, Pope Leo XIII says this about um, kind of the traditions of the church. He says, the fathers of Trent made it part of the order of conclave to lay upon the altar together with the sacred scripture, very important, and the decrees of the supreme pontiffs, papal authority, very important for them, uh, and then the summa of Thomas Aquinas went to seek counsel, reason, and inspiration. So it's kind of a stool here. We got scripture, we got the pope, and we have Aquinas. So he's heavily, heavily elevated in the church. <clears throat> 
And today, the Roman Catholic Church um, recognizes him as the preeminent teacher uh, of their church with his Summa Theology being the main textbook. Um, Okay, so a couple of critiques I have located for you from a Protestant perspective, and I'll just read these quotes, so don't fall asleep on me. Uh, So Francis Schaeffer, in the 20th century, in his book, How Should We Then Live, says this about Aquinas. Uh, Aquinas held that man had revolted against God and thus was fallen. But Aquinas had an incomplete view of the fall. He thought the fall did not affect man as a whole, but only in part. In his view, the will was fallen or corrupted, but the intellect was not affected. Thus, people could rely on their own human wisdom, and this meant that people were free to mix the teachings of the Bible with the teachings of non-Christian philosophers. So, yeah, so a a non-biblical view of man's fallenness. He later says, Thomas's view, the will, was fallen, but the mind was not, eventually resulted in people believing they could think out the answers to all the great questions begin, beginning only from themselves or themselves. So this idea, this exaltation of the human mind on par with, technically, the authority of Scripture in some ways. Um, now, we would admit that several men that we hold very um, in high regard have much to say about Thomas, and things about like Christology and the Trinity and um, the, uh, I guess, the historic position of who God is in the church. He held to those things, so we are, we can find um, good things from Aquinas. Yet I found some other things to criticize him about, which I'll give to you. Just This is actually a a blog post that said that Aquinas is not safe for Protestants. So, is the, so the question is, who do we go to as Protestants for our theology? And this person recommends not Aquinas. And I'll give you several reasons why, just for your amusement, because we have some time. One is he did not believe in sola scriptura. Um, oftentimes in his works, he begins not with scripture, but with ancient philosophers um, he often is characterized as an Augustinian scholar, yet he seems to disagree on many occasions with Augustine. Um, if, as Protestants, we're looking to someone to be our main theological point, we might not want to look to someone that's sponsored by the Council of Trent. I would, I would suggest that's probably accurate. Um, I talked about the departure on uh, depravity. Um, He also developed views on the sacraments, which became the hallmark of Catholic theology. Historian Phyllis Schaff says, in defining what a sacrament is, in the Latin is quid-esque sacramentum, Aquinas started with Augustine's definition that a sacrament is a visible sign of invisible grace, but went beyond him in the degree of efficiency they ascribed to it. They assert in unmistakable language that the sacraments or outward symbols contain and confer grace. Um, And this is the same language that was used by the Council of Trent. So he's giving much of the theology behind um, the Roman Catholic sacramental system. Um, He viewed that the sacraments perform their work through a virtue in themselves. Um... So Aquinas may have some good things to say about theology proper, but on soteriology, he's wrong on almost every point. Um, He believed that uh, justification is the infusion of grace and confuses confuses justification with sanctification. Um, So that's why Aquinas is the noted Roman Catholic theologian. Um, Obviously, we can find some things from him, Guys like Sproul and church historian experts like Gershner are fans of his and go to him for theology, yet it might be a dangerous place if we labor there uh, too long. So his theology is, of salvation is overtly tainted with the traits of Romanism in some way. So Thomas Aquinas, monumental figure in the history of the church, impacts the Roman Catholic Church even today, and um, so we have to discuss these things. So that's scholasticism as a whole. There's so much more that can be said about that, obviously. 
Um, but I wanted to skip to the next topic, and that's the Waldensians. So we're kind of seeing how the church is kind of clouding uh, the truth of the gospel in some way. And I think it's imperative that we look at something that might give us a little bit more hope, and that's the Waldensians. So you kind of have the Reformation occurs in 1517. Um, I think I say this over and over, but history doesn't occur in a vacuum. It's not like Luther just comes on the stage and he's the first to spout any ideas that, of reform. And one of the early, so we have some important figures in the church prior to Luther, uh, Wycliffe in England, Huss in Bohemia, and you even see some attempts within the structure of the Roman Catholic Church to reform it. There's this major uh, movement called the Conciliar Movement, where the church is forming councils in the hopes of correcting some things going on in the church. Um, part of that is the big elephant in the room of the papacy that I'm avoiding, um, the corruption that's there, and these councils are appointed to help change the course of the papacy going forward. But a group prior to that, even before all of those other movements, were the Waldensians. So they're an early reforming group of people that existed during the 1100s, um, and they kind of coincided with a time when the papacy excuse me, the papacy was actually interested in reforming the church. We talked about the monastic movement and the one, those, those monasteries that were established at Cluny and the Cluniac monks, and those guys ended up getting some uh, significant uh, power within the church, and then their reforming zeal went to Rome, and one of them actually got appointed pope, and they wanted to do some things uh, to reform the church. Uh, one was to eliminate simony, which is the idea that you could purchase a church position with money, because that was happening. Uh, civil leaders were buying their way into the church. These guys wanted to correct that. They also formed the now um, consistent message of the church that priests should be celibate. And that was their view, that that would be a good thing for the church, and that's because priests and bishops were having children and then passing their bishops' places to their children. So that was coming from a place of a good idea to prevent the church from being corrupted by these people. Uh, so those were major things they were trying to change in the church. Yet, so this is that time, um, but these guys were on the scene as well, the Waldensians, and they lived near Lyon, France, in Turin, Italy. If you go southern, south, eastern France, maybe north, western Italy, I'm pretty confident that's the Alps over there. And Turin is, if you guys are Olympics fans, I think 04, maybe, maybe 0, no, maybe not, it would be 06 or, 0, or 2010, we had the games in Torino, which is in Italy. Uh, so these guys lived in that range of Europe. This is the only uh, medieval, what we would call sect, says there's a group apart from the Roman Catholic Church that has survived since the Middle Ages. And you'll love this, they were the initial followers of a man named Waldo. So, <laughs> insert joke about man in striped shirt and cap. Uh, so Waldo, a little biography about him and where you can find information about him. <laughs> I, just, I just couldn't leave it alone. He was a wealthy merchant from Lyon. That's modern-day France. Remember, once again, we don't have these big nation-states. We don't have Italy. We don't have France. We don't have Spain. We just have these smaller kingdoms making up these areas. So he's from Lyon. He's a wealthy merchant. And this is important, too. This is the beginning of the merchant class. So we have serfs and nobles and the leaders of the church, and that's it, the serfs of the common people. But now we start seeing the power of the merchant class, so the, the beginning and the burgeoning efforts of a middle class, which is a very important aspect of even the Reformation as well, is that the middle class exists. Um, he became convinced that God was calling him to preach around 1170, yet he was not a priest. Um, so he adopted a lifestyle of poverty, and he attracted many followers. He memorized portions of Scripture, uh, not only in Latin, but also in the vernacular of the people. Vernacular meaning in the common language. Um, so he began a group of followers, and they identified themselves as the poor men of Lyon. Um, when they grew, uh, they went to Rome to get papal permission to exist as part of the church. So anytime these groups were founded, this happened with St. Francis of Assisi when he had the Franciscans. It happened with the Dominicans. It happens with these other movements that we've talked about, uh, the Cluniacs as well. They go to Rome so they can get permission to exist as part of the Roman Catholic Church. So these guys just want to be a what we would call an order of the church. 
Uh, of course, popes were reluctant to do that for new groups. They saw that as undermining the authority of the church. Um, in their view, um, they interviewed Waldo and his leaders, and they were deemed to be heretics. When asked about who Mary was, they said he was, or she, was the mother of Christ. The church's position on who Mary was is Mary is the mother of God. So just that slight variation uh, was, a, was a view that they did not see Mary as the church did, and they were branded heretics, and they were uh, not allowed to continue preaching. So they go back to Lyon and to the, to the Alps in southern France, and they disobey the orders of the Pope. So they are like Peter and the apostles. They believed it was better to obey God than man. Um, later history begins to refer to Waldo as our third Peter, Peter Waldo, probably due to his affinity for being like Peter in Acts and preaching in the midst of persecution. So in Lyon, the bishop of the area caught wind of this, and they expelled them from the church. And then they spread, and they went to other places. All over Europe, they fled, and they were persecuted. And they remained part of the Catholic Church in, for societal reasons, up until the 1500s. And to do that, as they went to different places, they would still take communion annually. In order to be a member of the Roman Catholic Church, you had to take communion at least annually, and they still baptized their children into the church. Um, their theology was rooted in several things. They all took vows of poverty. They believed that they could follow Christ more fully by going without material goods. Um, they were also poor in their religion. They did not have much for the religious pop, pomp and trappings as the Roman Catholic Church did. They stressed the Sermon on the Mount, a literal strict interpretation of that. They opposed violence, so it made them ostracized from the church. This is the time of the Crusades. So as the church is recruiting people to go join um, the Pope and um, the armies of the Lord to go take the Holy Land, these guys refused to go because they believed that they should not uh, do anything violent so that they were ostracized from society in that way. Uh, they refused to take oaths, seeing that as a command from the um, Sermon on the Mount. Here's a funny quote about a man that was accused of being a Waldensian. He says, everybody here knows that I am not because I swear and lie and drink like any good Catholic. I cannot then be accused of being a Waldensian. That's not to criticize Catholics per se, but the, the age at the time. Um, these guys were characterized by a strong commitment to the Bible and they preached it, translated it, and placed it into people's hands. And as they fled persecution, their Bibles were destroyed and taken from them. Families um, would take up memorizing portions of Scripture. So with, as they fled in community, different families were responsible for knowing different parts of the Scriptures. So they were able to preserve God's Word uh, through their memorization efforts. Um, they stressed preaching, uh, and not just exclusive to their primary leaders and ministers, everyone preached. So you'll see some traces in the Waldensians in the Reformation age in the Anabaptists. It's very similar, especially the Sermon on the Mount um, ethic and then the idea of uh, preaching, uh, that everyone preaches. So a little bit different view there. Uh, they did reject the most parts of the Roman Catholic sacramental system, yet they still held to the Lord's Supper and baptism as the church had um, um, supported it. There's some language in some of the writings that we can look back on that says they supported justification by faith as well. It would make sense if they rejected these other sacraments, that they supported an idea that they were justified by faith, not by works. Um, they also rejected the secular mix of the church. They opposed this idea of Constantinianism. Uh, so there's this idea that the church has not only um, spiritual and earthly or spiritual and um, yeah, spiritual powers, but they also have temporal powers on earth, and that the church at one point in the, this, I'm getting to my papacy part, but that's okay, in like 800 AD, uncovered a document from Constantine where he granted, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, granted the Roman pope the authority over the area of Rome. So around 800 that comes up, 
So that says, so popes from then on out say, hey, we got the donation of Constantine. So we can have authority not over just uh, clerical, churchly related matters, but over civil matters as well. So that tension now that they believe that that is accurate, which has been debunked since the 1400s, uh, that that actually existed, um, creates this tension between the church and the state. And the, the church is even more influenced by the state and corrupted in a variety of ways by that. And that was rejected by the Waldensians. Um, a legacy for them, in 1532, they formally separated themselves from the Catholic Church. So 15 years after Luther, they break with the Catholic Church, and they continued to get persecuted. And they ended up in Geneva, and they were supported by the Reformed Church there. Um, and in the 19th century, those folks that remained in Geneva that were Waldensians, many of them migrated to South America and the U.S. And there are several pockets of Waldensians community, communities still here in the U.S. and in Uruguay, which of all places in South America. Interesting to think about. But they are alive today and exist. Um, and they have, the Waldensians that have gone back to their original roots in Europe have now united with uh, some form of Methodism, and now they're more characterized by a social-oriented gospel. But just some food for thought if you're wondering how that connects to today. So that is the Waldensians. So they are kind of standing in the, uh, um, I guess, in, the, in between two ages uh, with some reforming ideas and break desire to be different and set apart from the church in an age prior to anybody else doing that. So Peter Waldo and the Waldensians, Please consider them. All right, I have two minutes, so I think I'm good. Any questions that I'm not going to be able to answer that you'd like to ask? <laughs> okay, let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for today. Lord, we thank you that uh, we can see your um, truth upheld in the authority of your word, um, upheld and preserved in the likes of um, 11th century uh, Waldensians even, Lord. I praise you that um, you throughout history have worked in men and women uh, the reality of uh, the changing effects of the gospel. And Lord, we are beneficiaries of that preservation, and we are also um, recipients of your grace, and we praise you for that. Lord, I, praise you, I pray that as we go to the worship service, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are um, um, ready to listen and to hear your word. Lord, pray you would open our ears and our eyes to your truth today. Lord, I praise you for your um, everla everlasting kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.